Views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Any of those bikini bombshells you're always watching worth a red-hot poker? Oh, dear. We become a race of peeping toms. What people ought to do is get outside their own house and look in for a change. Yes, sir. How's that for a bit of homespun philosophy? Reader's Digest, April 1939. Well, I only quote from the best. Yeah. Oh, you don't have to take my temperature this morning. Why? See if you can break 100. You know, I should have been a gypsy fortune teller instead of an insurance company nurse. I got a nose for trouble. Can smell it 10 miles away. You heard of that market crash in 29? I predicted that. Oh, yes, how'd you do that, Sean? Oh, simple. I was nursing a director of General Motors. Kidney ailment, they said. Nerves, I said. And I asked myself, what's General Motors got to be nervous about? Overproduction, I says. Collapse. When General Motors has to go to the bathroom ten times a day, the whole country's ready to let go. Oh, Stella, in economics, a kidney ailment has no relationship to the stock market, none whatsoever. Crashed, didn't it? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 21st, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today where the number is 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on the conversation today. And today our basic theme is going to be socialism and communism in our midst. Some case studies starting from the top to the bottom. And with that in mind, most of the show actually today will be about our city council communists because they're all, all denying that they're communists and socialists. So let's take a look at those denials and see if they actually stick. But first, I wanted to begin with a few comments about uh, what's happening in the economy with the auto bailouts and General Motors and... Uh, you know, I don't have much to say about this more than what I've already said on the show in the past couple over the past couple of years. Literally everything I've said on those past shows has come to pass, despite all the interim doubts and things that were uh, going on. But I thought it might be good to touch upon just um, where we are right now. Interesting, I just heard a business item, item news on uh, one of their stations this morning that uh, apparently... More of the top of executives of GM are unloading their shares in the company after Obama announced his green car standards, uh, you know, for the for the car, um, for all car manufacturers actually, which I think would put them in a really tough bind to have to do all that research and get their mileage down to what Obama wants it to be. But interesting, um, from a CTV report, uh, this would be back around May the first. Uh, Barack Obama has put a positive spin on the alarming news, you know, a clearly charted path. In this case, you're talking about Chrysler's survival. Now, you know we're all owners in Chrysler now, and that happened around May 1st. Uh, what the U.S. put in was an 8% stake for $8 billion in aid, while in Canada, the Canadian and Ontario government lend almost $4 billion for a 2% share in the company and a seat at the boardroom table. 
uh, not a road the conservative prime minister wanted to travel and uh, according to the news item and they have Harper quoted as saying this is not a perfect decision but far better than the alternatives and it will ensure a viable Chrysler. Chrysler Canada of course is not filing for bankruptcy protection so far at least as of April 30th and uh, production will likely be idled while the U.S. completes the new deal with Fiat a deal that, quote, saved the day, but will it save the future? Most workers are optimistic. If it keeps me working, I'm all for it, says a worker um, who, of course, works for Chrysler. And uh, everyone from the workers to the White House blames the bankruptcy on a group of lenders holding out for better terms. And then, you know, Obama was saying, you know, they were hoping that everyone else would make sacrifices and they would make none. And there are more sacrifices to come, says Obama with dealership closers to come. As I understand it, about 42% of GM dealerships will be closed in, um, in Canada here. Now, I was looking around, listening to some of the commentaries being made on, on some of the other radio stations and, and uh, listening to some of the direct words that you hear from our politicians and people in the industry and other commentators. What was interesting about the buyout with... Um, with Chrysler, or not the buyout, but the the bailout, the you know the government assistance, shall we say? Kevin Godet of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation gave us an alarming, alarming statistic. And this is on May first, where of course he comes out and he says, "Happy May Day! Welcome to the socialist paradise on Communist Day." Interesting how that theme keeps coming up more and more. And he points out how the Canadian government just pumped in 3.8 billion into Chrysler, and you know what that works out per, per employee? 9,400 employees at Chrysler, he says. It works out to $4.04 million per employee. That's what we're paying to keep one guy's job. Now, how many of us have to work to put even one batch of $4 million together to keep that one guy working? And, uh, you know, (laughs) I just can't believe that they can even think like that. Now... Of course, one of the big factors holding GM up is the unfunded liability of their pension plan. This is the big, big, big issue. And the governments are trying to, trying to avoid that issue because the numbers uh, with the pension plan are huge, much bigger than those dealing with Chrysler, and I understand no less than $12 billion. I wonder how much that will work out per, per person that's going to get a pension off all the, all the rest of us. Um, now, interesting... Who have I got here? This was interesting, too. This was, uh, again, uh, CTV interview, Seamus Reagan, who was in, in, interviewing Richard Cooper, executive director of J.D. Power & Associates Canada. And he again emphasizes, what we're seeing here is a culmination of the last 20 to 25 years. The issue for General Motors is that so many of the people who are dependent on them are not necessarily active workers anymore. <laughs> so you've got more people not working than you have working dependent on this company, on its current income. And he says that's the legacy cost of the pensions, and that's what's on the table, and that's where the solution has to be found. Now, of course, that's the issue where the precise issue on which um, unions refuse to budge. They don't want to budge on that issue. And uh, Dennis DeRossier, who, of course, is a well-known commentator on the whole auto industry was talking about, uh, you know, dealers now being in serious trouble because they haven't been selling cars, particularly in the U.S. where sales are down by 50%. You know, you can make a company as efficient as you want and make the car as efficient as you want, but if people aren't buying, you're not going to get the revenues you need to pay back any loans or any guarantees or, or any kind of investments. 
And, uh, of course, GM has realized they're way over-dealered, and apparently they're not going to renew a lot of their franchise agreements when they do expire. And uh, GM Canada is dropping from 700 dealers to about 400 dealers here in Canada, although no firm decisions yet. And a lot of the stuff that's going on, you know, is all about uh, deals behind closed doors, as he says. Um, the GM bankruptcy stuff is, of course, th the last deadline set was May 29th. Uh, we're not there yet, but I've seen many of these deadlines pass, as I notice in the clippings that I collect, that, um, you know, this deadline passed. Well, we're three weeks past it, but let's keep going. And in the meanwhile, you hear the government wanting to pick what they call pick w picking winners and losers in the marketplace. marketplace. And what, what that really is, is they're making winners and losers. That's the theory anyway. And in practice, it means making losers and losers because even the people they're helping aren't really being helped by that kind of help, especially if they become dependent on it. So that's really all I had to say about uh, the whole auto industry. It's just a, it's, it's a train crash happening. The whole industry has to restructure. It has to rethink in every way of, of, of the way it markets, and it cannot operate the way it has been operating in the past. And um, that's one thing the labor movement just won't budge on. It's not a news story. But uh, that's where we'll leave it. And we're going to take a quick break here where we'll hear Milton Friedman actually talking about unions back in 1980 on his show, Free to Choose. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about the communists on city council. Back after this. What Len Williams said before is again a travesty on what was actually going on. The real boost to the un trade union movement came after the Great Depression of the 1930s. That Great Depression was not a failure of capitalism. It was not a failure of the private market system, as we've pointed out in another one of the programs in this series. It was a failure of government. It was not the case that somehow or other there was a decline in the conditions of the working class that produced a great surge of unionism. On the contrary, there, unions have never accounted for more than one, of, one out of four or one out of five of American workers. The American worker benefited not out of unions. He benefited in spite of unions. He benefited because there was greater opportunity, because there were people who were willing to invest their money, because there was an opportunity for people to work, to save, to invest. That's still the case today. because I, I don't know how many of you have heard about this. Take a look at the headline, Killer Living Wages. Now, <laughs> the fellow who's writing for the Financial Post here, Peter Taylor, he, he's calling it Killer Living Wages because it's actually called Living Wages. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, the phenomenon started in 1994 in Baltimore, and it went something like this. Minimum wage just doesn't cut it. It's not, it doesn't allow you to make a, a decent living, hence they put the word living wage in. But the thing is, it was intended for the poorest cities in, in the states. To date, according to this article, there are about 140 American cities that, that has adopted this particular value of living wages. But the concern that the writer has in this particular article is, it seems to be spreading outside the very poor cities. And now, believe it or not, it's trickled its way into Canada because of all cities, Calgary and Waterloo, Ontario. They're now looking at the possibility. In fact, right there in Calgary, it's being, it, the, the city council is going to be meeting to discuss it, January or February. Waterloo looking at the same thing, bringing this in here. Now, now this is odd because 
we have laws when it comes to minimum wage and the money that they're looking at is bringing this thing up to thirteen dollars in some sense I um, if you calculate it some some it's more like seventy percent more than minimum wage brought in by municipalities have the two of you ever heard of such thing before this particular article was raised? Well, I mean, it's just the flavor of the day and the more extreme <laughs> one, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you know, this is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. The taxpayer, the local uh, taxpayer, is pay? the one is going to be paying this. And the three towns that are mentioned in the article, Waterloo and Calgary and et cetera, within Canada, were actually uh, above average towns for, as mm -hmm. far as what people are earning. Um, this is a blatant attempt to do a few things, not only to redistribute wealth, but to uh, prevent towns from outsourcing to private companies services that then could be done by unions instead. Mm -hmm. It's unions trying to protect their jobs, not just to protect them, but to, to actually get a little bit wealthier. And the person and persons getting uh, ripped off in this whole deal are every one of us, all of the taxpayers. It's, it's not right. The city, you know, government is being used as a cover for what is no different than a theft. And I would encourage any of those union guys to just come to my door, bring a gun, put my head up against the wall, say, give me some of your money, instead of, <laughs> instead of electing someone to do it for them, which is exactly what they're doing. And that, of course, is an issue that was also discussed here at City Hall in London. Interesting how all these socialist issues arrive at the same time. And I've mentioned this over and over again, from green down to socialism. And they'll always tell you, oh, our community is unique in this. We're doing this for the first time. And everybody's doing it because it's a coordinated effort. Now, back on April 21st, a London Free Press report by Jonathan Scher ran with the headline, Living Wage Proposal Branded Communist. And he wrote as follows, quote, City Hall's killer bees are now the killer C's, C as in communist. Councillor Roger Crancy last night accused some colleagues on city, on city Council of supporting a measure that he views as another step towards communism, exploring what social activists call a living wage. So in other words, uh, you know, I'm looking at this article, I'm thinking, okay, Crancy called no person particularly a name, but labeled a specific proposed measure put before the board as being, again, not, communi not communist, but as another step towards communism. He didn't even say it was communism. Uh, you know, we'll shortly forget about all this if we don't say these things out loud. And by the way, if you're not sure what the killer bees are referring to, of course, they're referring to four members uh, of the city council and, and the board, Gina Barber, Nancy Branscombe, Joni Beckler, and Judy Bryant. And I was wondering, well, what about Susan Eagle, who also defended herself against the charge of being a socialist? Uh, she's not a B, but a, an S.E., Susan Eagle, socialist extra, I guess. I don't know. But uh, Crancy asks, why are we trying to make everything the same for everybody? We'll be creating what I call a communist society. That's what he's quoted in the paper as saying. And here again, society is what Crancy's communist label has stuck on it. And uh, the article goes on, a living wage policy had been suggested by controller Gina Barber, one of the so-called killer bees whose last name begins with that letter and who have drawn derision from proponents of development. Now, interesting, as if she's only drawn derision from proponents of development. Actually, I think they've drawn derision from all walks of life, liberty, and property. And, uh, of course, they talk about some American cities, cities having implemented such a policy to ensure its full-time civic workers get more than the minimum wage. A number set by politicians, which of course is force, rather than economics, which of course is consent. 
And other cities have gone further, requiring companies who do business with them to get a living wage, Barber said later, end quote. Now, of course, everything that article just said in April is exactly what Paul McKeever was saying with uh, Christine Williams back in November of 08, when the same issues were being brought up in other communities. But with that article from the uh, London Free Press, the communists and socialists on city council started intensifying their denials that they were communist or socialist. And this is what I really want to concentrate on today because it's been an insane debate and on all sides. And I, I have to, you know, I have to say a little more about this because really it was the left that's exposing itself, the communists and socialists, but the people arguing against them aren't doing the right job the right way, and that's why they're losing this one big time. But, um, you know, the London Free Press offered no further insights into this aspect of the tensions on city council, even though they started it by making an issue out of a label rather than what that label actually represents in reality. So... I had to turn to r local radio to get any other kind of perspective on the issue, and it's there that the socialists and communists themselves most re readily provide the proof and testimony that they are indeed socialist and communist, as they continue to shrug the very label that so correctly describes them. So let's look at a few of these issues. And um, one of the, f there's a lot, there's of course the, the, what happened at the meeting with the Board of Control a week ago today, I'll certainly be getting to that because that's very key to it, but just preceding that, you may have heard about, uh, just as the Free Press re reported here, it talked about, um, um, you know, that it's developers that are targeting the, the so-called communists on the board. Well, of course, it's atta an attack on developers, and what they were basically trying to do is ban contributions to candidates made by developers. Uh, which is really weird since current donation controls are already overbearing and totally undemocratic. But they don't care about that. When, when the left attacks political donations by quote-unquote developers, my first question is, do they mean developers as people or do they mean corporations? They never say cor they say corporation and they slip that in there once in a while, but most the word they use 99.9% .9 of the time is developers. Now, there's a lot of developers who aren't corporations, and there's a lot of corporations who aren't developers. So that's why, to me, the use of the word developer, if, if what you're trying to ban is corporate contribution, shouldn't even be used. So why developer? Well, because you're dealing with an anti-capitalistic, anti-freedom mentality. And the people who use that term think all developers are evil, and as are all politicians, because they're, they're, they're influenced by them, right? And it strikes me that people have such misconceptions about how our political system really runs, uh, which you'll never discover reading the newspapers, you know, which only at best report on, on decisions and policies, not really the process at, uh, at which they're arrived at. And, you know, there's, you know, newspapers might be printed in black and white, but they're red all over. Only I'm not, I don't mean R-E-A-D, I mean R-E-D. So there's more of that there. And, uh, you know, the myth that the whole process is democratic, you know, majority rule, uh, that, that, that that should play a role everywhere, not just in the political marketplace, but also within political parties and organizations and plebiscites. Well, nothing should be further, could be further from the truth. It's, it's, it's most dangerous to do that. Today's politicians are almost exclusively undemocratic, with the exception of a handful. Their universal policy and answer to every issue under the sun is rob Peter to pay Paul. Rob Peter to pay Paul. What a boring record. And it comes out of every one of them, and it's the only solution they have to any problem under the sun. In fact, you can define any political issue 
today in these terms. And which side of an issue any particular voter is on depends on whether he sees himself as Peter, the victim of government robbery, or Paul, a victim of his own circumstances or maybe of other things. But there's no principles involved here. There is uh, no judgment of right or wrong permitted under such a system, which is why principled good people are an extreme rarity in politics, and which is also why people are so suspicious of donations to politicians, because it's really the politician, not the developer, who's a potential culprit in such a fear. So what really does influence politicians? I've, I've watched them for years. I'm, I, I've run in politics myself. I run a political party, and I've seen the other parties, and, you know, we talk to each other. We're not, we, we're not always arguing with each other over issues. But like everyone, everyone's influenced by lobby groups, by their friends, by contributors, by the public, by newspapers, by letters to the editor. So it could be anything. Maybe they got a whole weird new idea in their head that's not even connected to anything I can think about. But that's what motivates them. And depending on the degree of their principles, they could be influenced by anything and anyone. And the less principled a politician is, uh, the more that politician will be influenced by trivia, perhaps including favors and money, even on the side, far removed from uh, the public eye. <coughs> Brian Mulroney, maybe, something like that, you know? And, uh, but if you want to know a, a very unprincipled politician, and uh, people think I'm joking when I say this, but it's not a joke, it's the truth. It's when a politician tells you he's going to do anything that the public wants. I'll do, the public will, the public voted, they wanted this, they wanted that. Well, what do we need you for if that's all you're going to do? Why don't we just take polls and take you right out of the equation and we wouldn't have to just get rid of Board of Control, we could get rid of City Council while we're at it. So, you know, remember, that same politician who will come to your door and say, you know, yes sir, I'm going to listen to what you say and take your opinion into account, is going right next door to your neighbor who doesn't agree with you on anything and he's going to him and saying the same thing to that guy. And he goes to the same, says, says the same thing to the other guy until he realizes all these people are so different. The best thing is not to say anything at all. Don't be controversial. And then maybe nobody will notice you'd stand for something and they won't vote against you. And that's how politics really works. In my experience, the people who support political parties and candidates do so because they appreciate the character or the principles or lack thereof of that particular candidate or party. So, you know, there should be no limits on income to a candidate or party. That's, that's uh, an absurdity. And um, who cares? What, what if a developer gave one of the candidates running, say, a billion dollars, okay? Is that going to make you vote for him? Look, like, wh where's the disconnect? Are we, you know, the idea that you can't influence politicians since they're influencing us, and we all want something from the politicians anyway, so everybody's playing the game. Where is this idea that, uh, you know, you can't influence them, that, that it's just a one-way street and that the voter is going to be influenced simply because somebody's got money? Well, then the problem's not the politician or the businessman or the developer. It's the, it's the voter. We shouldn't be letting them vote on all these things. Wouldn't that be an interesting solution? Now, it was, you know, I was listening to a lot of controversy on this. A number of people called in on, on a number of radio shows on a number of different stations. And I was listening in particular um, to, uh, on one commentary. Jim Chapman got really upset, i got to tell you, over at AM 980. Uh, he was going to some of these meetings. I didn't go to them. But uh, in talking on the whole issue of uh, the um, you know, do political donations, um, he got an interesting call from uh, none other than Gordon Mood, who happens to be an executive of Freedom Party, and I happened to catch it on the 5th of May, AM 980. 
And Gord mentions to Jim, he says, you know, it's interesting that the side that believes it's okay to extract money from businessmen through taxes thinks somehow that voluntary donations to politicians is a bad thing. On which side morally should one be on this issue? Should one be on the side of those who advocate more taxation, more government control, or should one uh, be on, you know, in favor of voluntary donations, free market competition, and getting through life using voluntary means? And says Gord, I don't understand why Roger Carancy couldn't wouldn't name names. Why can't we call a spade a spade here? You know, they're saying that these people have uh, that they that they're communists, that they're this, but well, I don't want to really mention them by name. Because what the other side has done, says Gord, is to declare war on people who make their living through the marketplace. And he says, to me, this is a war against the people in the marketplace, and we should declare the fact that we won't sit down and take it. As a person who runs a business in downtown London, i got to say I'm sick and tired of these socialists who think they can just take more and more of our money with no accountability on their side. Well, here, here, I agree with that 100%. Let's take a quick break for a smile, and when we come back on the other side, more confessions from the socialists on city council. I worked for a really small police department. It was, like, very small. It was so small, we, like, had no budget whatsoever. I mean, we didn't have patrol cars. We had to drive our own cars, right? It's kind of hard to catch speeders in the day woo, but... <laughs> right, and we had, like, we didn't have a police frequency for the... We couldn't call in, so we had to share the frequency with the country music station. So, essentially, the DJ was the dispatcher. He'd be like, well, we got something new here by Travis Tritt, a little John Michael Montgomery, and a robbery in progress on 43rd and Main. <laughs> Coming up, I shot the sheriff. budget. I mean, like, guys have cops on, you guys have cops on bikes here. That's great. Cops on bikes. How the heck they get that going on, right? That theme song goes, bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do if your chain break loose? Many observers have found that two workable yardsticks help in discovering how near a community is to despotism. The respect scale and the power scale. A careful observer can use a respect scale to find how many citizens get an even break. As a community moves towards despotism, respect is restricted to fewer people. A community is low on a respect scale if common courtesy is withheld from large groups of people on account of their political attitudes. A power scale is another important yardstick of despotism. It gauges the citizens' share in making the community's decisions. Communities which concentrate decision-making in a few hands rate low on a power scale and are moving towards despotism. That was actually from a 1946 Encyclopedia Britannica video, if you can believe it or not. They were already into the video world back in 1946. Encyclopedia Britannica, I can't believe it. But there it was. And, of course, respect and power were two of the big issues coming up at the, at the meeting last week about the abolishing of Board of Control. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now till noon, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in the conversation. And I know I haven't said this for a while. Email 
just write chrw at gmail.com if you want to contact us with any ideas for shows, too, or any comments you have on any of our past broadcasts. Now, you know, last week, uh, I guess it was a week ago tonight, uh, there was a meeting on the Board of Control. I noticed here in the um, Londoner, Phil McLeod, Editor's View, calls the Board of Control vote a win for democracy, which is, of course, irony of ironies, and I think he says it a little, too. He says, you could say, even with a straight face, that at some level, democracy was the winner in last week's City Council Committee of the whole, where they were gathering on Board of Control. And, of course, 12 people voted against Board of Control, and five voted for it, and two were not there, so I guess they were abstainers. Now, what was interesting is the reasoning behind uh, the people who were kind of stuck in their points of view. And... The Free Press didn't report on any of this because, of course, they don't normally do that. You can't do that kind of thing. So what I was doing was I was, um, you know, what I leave my machines running and listening to various conversations all over the place on various radio shows. And I listened to the conversations as politicians call in to explain their points of view. And then I put them in print. You know, when you see something in writing, all the things that slip by your mind when somebody's talking and constantly changing what they're saying and, and contradicting themselves, boy, does it ever show up on a piece of paper. I actually plan to do a show on that. It's, it's how I learned how to think, by the way. You learn to think by writing things down because the mind can't possibly keep more than two, two, or, three, two or three things going consciously at once. But Joni Baker was possibly one of, the be- one of the best of two or three people I chose here to give you an example of how these folks are thinking. Of course, she's in favor of abolishing the Board of Control, and she thinks that, uh, and her reasoning is such, and I'm taking these from verbatim transcripts that I took, and uh, although I don't want to read every single word because it gets a little repetitive and stuff, but I wanna, I've highlighted some of the points. If you'd like to have a copy, uh, write me, and I'll, I'll send you the notes. But she says, uh, you know, she thinks the Board of Control should be abolished. And her reasons are, first, that two groups have been mandated to study the Board of Control and structure of City Hall, one of them many years ago. And both were made up of business people of labor individuals and neighborhood concerns. And the more recent one had council representation on the committee. And the conclusion of both those separate groups studying independently, she says, um, the issue said it's time to get rid of Board of Control. Now, I didn't know issues talked like that, but that's the literal word she, the the issue said. And she says you have the Chamber of Commerce that is also recommended to council to get rid of Board of Control. And you've got the Urban League, which is an umbrella organization for neighborhood associations, who has asked council to get rid of Board of Control. And all for a number of reasons, she says. Now, that stopped me cold right there. You know, what, everybody's got a totally different reason to get rid of Board of Control? Well... You can't do that. No, you can't do that. There can only be one reason that they all share before you're going to get rid of that board of control. You can't have a bunch of competing interests who see board of control as an obstacle to their money, which is basically what the whole issue is about, getting getting our free money. And, you know, she says that's the number one thing. And then, you know, people who think, and I hear this, and Jim Chapman was saying it, and other people who were on the other side of this issue keep saying... They don't understand our point of view that we're going to lose four votes by taking away board of control. Well, they do understand that. And what you guys don't understand is that they understand. And so what you're constantly doing is speaking to your point and not to theirs. So 
And, and here's Joni Baker saying it herself. I think that you'll hear members of the public say, well, I vote for four members of the Board of Control, and you're going to be taking away my democratic right to elect Board of Control. I say that non- that's nonsense, because statistics show otherwise, that most people either don't vote for any member of Board of Control, or they vote for one individual, as it's called power voting, so they don't actually exercise their right to elect four. And they'll say it's undemocratic to take away my right to vote. Now... I just read that and I go, what, your right to vote depends upon continued voting? I can't stay at home and not vote? So if I stay at home and not vote for you because I don't want to vote for you and you're all I got, you're going to take my right away. That's how the thinking is here. And if you have a right to four votes, the idea that you have to exercise all four of them is, is that's, that's irrational. <laughs> what can you say about that? That's irrational. Of course you want a power vote because you only want one individual to get in. And the irony is they use the opposite justification of this very argument to say that they can get rid of Board of Control, because, you know, Board of Control could, out, could override the vote that you did with, with a counselor. So, oh, my goodness. And then she says, my argument would be, well, um, how democratic was it when 76% of Londoners said reduce the size of council in the last referendum and 55% said get rid of Board of Control, says Baekler. And the same people who are saying this is undemocratic are the ones that chose to do nothing with that vote and chose to ignore it, she says. So I don't believe that it's democracy. Well, isn't that interesting? But listen to her example. 76% of Londoners said reduce the size of council. 55% said reduce border control. Well, if you're going by democratic principles, wouldn't you reduce the size of council? Or are they concluding council as border control? I think that if 76% said one... And 55% focused on the other. It seems that there's two separate entities we're talking about there. So why, w- why would she pick the 55% one and not the 76% one? I mean, if, if numbers are what matter, you know? And, of course, um, polls are not a process for democracy, nor can they ever be. Referendums, by the way, are a terrible idea because they're completely skewed by the way the, the question is asked, and it's always been the case. You want to avoid referendums as much as possible. And as I've said on this show, there's only maybe one, two issues that you vote on referendums, and that's constitutional changes and, su- and basic issues to structure in government, which we're being denied here. We have not had a referendum on this issue. And I don't know why people keep thinking that they can just get away with saying that. It's a lie. And, uh, well, and she makes some arguments about at-large voting and... Um, then she says, uh, the principle is, what is the best form of governance for the city of London? Well, that's not a principle, that's a question. Okay, and that's, <laughs> they don't know a question from a principle, from a, a toilet flushing. I, I don't know. Uh, she says, I think you'll hear people say, and now this is interesting, that every municipality has an executive committee, and that's simply not true, says Baker. If you look at the results of the survey that our staff provided, again, that independent, you know, third-party staff, our staff, uh, Brampton, Hamilton, Durham, Halton, Markham, Mississauga, and on and on do not have an executive committee. And there are only two that do, Oshawa and Toronto. And of course, London has a board of control. And Kitchener has a finance committee. And a lot of them do their work as committee of the whole. So I'm thinking to myself, well, how relevant is that to anything? What's in London's proposal? When she says this, she's implying that there is going to be no committee of any sort to replace the board of control. Otherwise, why bring in an argument that says other cities, don't, not all cities, have a board of control? Is that in our proposal, that we're not going to have a board of, or, uh, any kind of committee, any kind of committee of the whole, any kind of finance committee, any kind of executive committee? She changes the word every time. When you see it on the paper, I went back, I checked, I listened, she, and she does it carefully. She's using these words carefully. 
So it's an irrelevant argument. What's London's suggestion? London's proposal is we're going to have a committee. So whether other cities have one or not is, to use their own phrase, a red herring. Okay. Now, here's interesting. From my perspective, argues Bachelor. Bachelor. Um, the biggest concern I have is a function of the Board of Control that creates another hierarchical layer of governance in the City of London, and it's a layer of governance that seems to be disconnected from the constituency base. How can she say that? She, what she, she wants to disconnect it from the constituency base. That's what she's in the process of doing. That's what she's advocating. The constituency base is the people who can vote for them. And so if you vote for border control, you have your constituency base. They vote citywide. That's the base. That's what they mean by at large. And you can vote for them. So to say they're disconnected from the constituency base is an absurdity or a totally misleading concept. And she says, uh, quote, whenever there's a problem, people say, call your ward counselor. They don't say call border control. And when one group has the ability to veto another, aha, it leads to conflict, frustration, dissension. Well, I can't get what I want. And it allows the Board of Control to veto decisions but not be held accountable in the way a counselor is held accountable. What is she talking about? This is this, the thing she's criticizing is, is what she's proposing. Right now, we have an accountable Board of Control because we can vote for them. It's just unbelievable. Completely upside-down thinking. And, uh, you know, I know she always uses the word governance and not government, which implies rule by people and not by laws. It's in the thinking. It's in the, it's in the epistemology of all uh, left-wing thinking, which left is communism, socialism, fascism, all of the isms besides capitalism. So, uh, you know, she's saying that you know, people don't have really call the board of control when they have problems. She says they generally call another member of council. And um, she says, uh, you know, individuals can go to their mayor. Yeah, like, I'm going to call the mayor. You know, that's a better person to call them board of control. Just unbelievable rationalization. And um, then, then uh, you know, she was asked about the fact that, uh, you know, the last supposed referendum we had, there weren't enough people who bothered to show up and vote, which made it a plebiscite, and therefore it wasn't a binding referendum. And then... Um, you know, what about that? And then she says, uh, certainly, this is Joni speaking, quote, certainly some members will say that the public doesn't understand what the Board of Control does and that they were in error when they voted in 2003. Well, first of all, they didn't vote. They took an opinion poll. There was no vote. Let's make that clear, uh, even though she keeps saying there's a vote. Um, you know, when you fill out an opinion poll for a, for a commercial company and you send it in, you're not voting. You're, you're filling out an opinion poll. And, she s and then she says, I say the public is very savvy. The public is intelligent, and they can make up their mind. And I noticed, I went back, that she, a distinctly singular phrase she uses. So she believes in the public mind as a, as a single entity. And she goes, I certainly there believe there is an informed public, and we, through the governance of task force committee, held at least nine public meetings, notice meetings, public meetings, not votes, not, not votes for the public, just meetings, on this issue. In addition, we had special delegations, and then she goes through all the interest groups again. Urban League, London, blah, 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 I don't even want to hear about it. But of course, one of the ones that they didn't talk to was the Forest City Institute, because of course, <laughs> that's one of the interest groups they're not interested in. And then she goes, and in addition to general public meetings, we had meetings of specific delegations to our committee. Committee after committee after committee. And as Jim Chapman pointed out, he says, if you take all everything all together, the aggregate num number of people that showed up at all those committees was about 100. 
And that was over all the years. So fewer than 100 people are doing any voting on any of this or even know it's going on. Most people are sitting at home watching Desperate Housewives, for heaven's sakes. So um, this is how the left generally, you know, keeps going. And, um, you know, now then, then she was asked about what, what about the contention that the Board of Control is the only thing standing between the left of center movement and the city council. And this, of course, where Joni kind of said, she's, well, that's utter nonsense, she says. And this I found interesting, because I'd like to have someone c c confirm this for me. She says the Ontario Fair Tax Coalition has been recording votes on council. So apparently there's some recorded votes available somewhere. I don't know where you can get them. But she, she claims that the lefties basically vote to save more taxes than the people on the other side of the issue. And that's basically, um, you know, her whole argument. And... Um, she keeps asking, you know, why is there such a strong push to, to malign a group on council? If someone is following the issue, I think they can connect the dots and follow the issue. Well, there's not just Joni Bachelor, There's also Mayor Anne-Marie DeSico-Best who said um, about the meeting last week, you know, everybody was upset who went there because they said everybody, you know, the council had their mind made up in advance, right? And, uh, well, there was a reason for that. The meeting was just statutory. If they didn't have to hold it, they wouldn't have bothered. And, uh, you know, they want to just change... Whenever you change the governance and structure of something, you have to have these statutory meetings. And uh, that's the only reason that the, that the meetings were there. And then she says, she doesn't know what the argument about democracy is all about, because ultimately she says, when you vote as a person, you get to vote for whoever your representatives are going to be, whether it's a ward mayor or board of control. Whatever that is, people are still going to get a vote. People's votes aren't taken away, they're just voting for less number of positions. <laughs> Your vote's not being taken away. You're voting for less number of positions. Two contradictory sentences right after each other, and uh, but you're still voting, she says. You know, that's what the Soviets said in their single-party system, which is why totalitarian totalitarianism on the left is always a phony democracy. You know, you w they still call it a democracy when you've got one party to vote for. But uh, so she says that's why, because, you know, we can take away as many votes. But as long as you've got one in there for some one person somewhere, we can still call it democratic. And um, basically, again, she goes on. She says she's been very consistent with her position. And she made it clear, quote, when we had the referendum question, whatever the result would be, I would honor it, she said. So, so she's one of these people that says, I'll do what the public wants. But... The vote was lost, according to the democratic rules established at the time. So if the mayor wants to honor that vote, she would have to support Board of Control. Because the rules of the election were that you had to reach a certain threshold. And thresholds are high on fundamental issues. Uh, they're, they're put like that for a reason, and, and uh, the, the number they had wasn't even that high. And I have to stress, we still haven't had a single vote on this. We had an unofficial opinion poll now being used to justify a democratic process that did not happen and does not exist. Um, the necessary threshold to make the vote binding was established in advance of the vote. And to honor that referendum means uh, that there exists no official public vote on the, on the issue. You can't change rules after the game has been played. And that's what they're doing constantly. They play the game, they lose, and they change the rules. And that's how the left always plays the game. The, the right is totally oblivious to this. And, you know, this is the, the same kind of anti-democratic rhetoric the left was spewing when they argued George Bush didn't have a true majority because the popular vote, uh, the one that doesn't count, according to their own rules, um, exceeded the electoral vote, the one that does count. 
and which the left continually denies. And which, by the way, they they always take advantage of it the other way around when it occur, when it's in their favor, and then they don't object to the to the to the undemocratic nature of it. And you got Steve Turner of the Urban League, who's saying, you know, if you actually look at uh, at it, the representative you want to most speak for you is the mayor and your ward councilor. Well, no thanks. I don't want anybody speaking for me. Thanks very much. Anyways, let's take a quick break, and on the other side of this, we'll have a few more statements on this. The spread of respect and power in a community is influenced by certain conditions, which many observers measure by means of the economic distribution and information scales. If a community's economic distribution becomes slanted, its middle-income groups grow smaller, and despotism stands a better chance to gain a foothold. A community rates low on an information scale when the press, radio, and other channels of communication are controlled by only a few people, and when citizens have to accept what they are told. In communities of this kind, despotism stands a good chance. Today, democracy can ebb away in communities whose citizens allow power to become concentrated in the hands of bosses. What I say goes, see? I'm the law around here. <laughs> the test of despotic power is that it can disregard the will of the people. It rules without the consent of the governed. And that, of course, is what's missing in this whole debate, is the governed aren't really in the debate. We just get these public meetings and, and listen to the governing class. Listen, you know, ha They have their own little debate, and we get to watch. And then they tell us, uh, they ask us an opinion, take it on a radio show, take it on a plebiscite. Oh, well, the most people want this, and it's all make-believe. Um, you know, Susan Eagle got in on this as well, and she was one of the ones that complained about being called a socialist, according to Jim Chapman, who was at the meeting. She was on a radio show saying that the whole thing about border control is a grab at uh, self-preservation. That's what I think it is. I don't think it's about democracy at all, she says. And then she spent the next 15 minutes talking about democracy. <laughs> okay. And she talked about how democracy's played out in a lot of different ways. It's played out by going to your voters, to your vote. I don't have any voters at election time and saying that you will honor the message that you give us on the ballot. If voters don't pay attention to what you're telling them, how is that democratic? Well, it's democratic if you play by rules. And if the rules say that you have to have 80% to get something changed and you only get 70%, you can't go running around arguing about majorities. Excuse me. If you're going to do that, do that afterwards. And I just can't believe anybody on the right, you, just, you, guys, you guys are all asleep. Wake these people up. They're lying to you to your face. There was no no referendum was a plebiscite. If Jim, if Jim Montag were still alive today, from the London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition, he used to be the first guy going around saying, no, that's a plebiscite. It's not a referendum. There's a difference. Plebiscites are not binding. They're just opinion polls. And a lot of the people, and I know this for a fact, who, because they understood it would probably be a plebiscite, did not vote. And a lot of the other people who voted yes thought that they were going to get rid of the Board of Control entirely, like get rid of the committee, too. 
that it would be a, 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 a you know get rid of this expense. No, they're going to keep that part. They're just taking away the voters' vote. It's that's the only thing going on here, and that's why I have to argue that you know they're they're more and more communist all the time because that's what communists do. They change the structure of government after the fact. They get in there, they claim, they make claims to all sorts of popular supports and things like that, and then they change the structure of government, and the rest of the population sits there, you know, um, playing really dumb about the whole thing. And uh, again, Susan Eagle says she supported the Board of Control before the vote. She even lobbied her constituents, and then she says, uh, okay, so now I'm going to change my mind because they told me to. Well, there's another principal politician for you. And that might seem like the right thing to do to a lot of folks, but you don't change the rules after the fact. And, um, you know, if someone called me a socialist or a communist or a fascist, I would simply define the term for them and then, then demonstrate how my actions and beliefs are not socialist, communist, or fascist. It's kind of a, a, kind of a no-brainer. But socialists don't do that. They won't do that. They can't. And the weird thing is, conservatives also don't go to the effort to look up any definitions to contrast them, you know. Um, I heard Jim Chapman on his show going, well, I know what a difference between a communist and a socialist is, and he goes on defending these people as socialists, not communists. And it doesn't go to the effort to explain what the difference is, as if everybody else seems to know. Well, here we go. Funk and Wagnalls. Definition. Socialism. Public collective ownership or control of the basic means of production, distribution, and exchange with the avowed aim of operating for use rather than for profit and of, of, of assuring to each member of society an equitable share of goods, services, etc. Now here's a definition of communism. A social system characterized by the communal sharing of goods and services. A theory of social change advocating a classless society, public ownership of almost all productive property, and the sharing of the products of labor. There is no difference between these two definitions. I've known this for years. Socialism and communism are the same thing. Um, there is a slight, slight, slight possible difference, but it, in the end it means nothing. And, and Ayn Rand pointed out, she says, there is no difference between communism and socialism except in the means of achieving the same ultimate end. Communism proposes to enslave men by force, socialism by vote, which is why they're all uh, mucking around with the, social, with the voting system right now, and then they'll go to the force system. And she says it's merely the difference between choosing between murder and suicide. There's no difference between the principles, policies, and practical results of socialism and those of any historical pre or prehistorical tyranny. Socialism is merely uh, democratic absolute monarchy. That is a system of absolutism without a fixed head, open to seizure of power by all comers, by any ruthless climber, opportunist, adventurer, demagogue, or thug, she says. And that, by the way, is exactly what has been advocated by those opposing the Board of Control. They keep saying it's, so, it's too hard to get elected. Too hard to get elected. And both socialism and fascism involve the issue of property rights. The right to property is the right of use and disposal. But here's a difference. Socialism negates private property rights altogether and advocates the vesting of ownership and control in the community, uh, whereas fascism leaves ownership in the hands of private individuals but transfers control of property to the government. And that's a lot of what's going on with developers' fees and with the whole debate over even, uh, um, you know, donations to, uh, to politicians and things like that and where they can locate and, and issues of that nature. Now, 
you know, you, you might accurately conclude based upon these definitions that maybe the lefties are really acting more fascist than communist. But the distinction's a fuzzy one, to say the least, and the main thing is they all, all three positions are anti-capitalistic. But, uh, you know, socialism, by falsely suggesting that we voted to get rid of the board of control when we re clearly did not, by, employ, you know, by implying that majority rule is a premise of democracy, which it, it is not. It's a very limited discipline. Uh, it was established in direct opposition to mob rule. And uh, s we had have to severely limit those things that are subject to a vote. And uh, it's communism because by a very tiny group, you've got this attempt to dismantle the electoral process bit by bit. We've seen boundary re-designations, re re uh, reductions of councillors per ward. Um, but still with the same total number. Elimination of vote for Board of Control, displaying a com complete contempt for the electoral process, which is, by the way, not democracy, and a concept that extends well beyond electoral processes of majority rule, direct democracy philosophies, which are just code words for socialism and communism. And, um, and of course, you can call them fascists if you want, because they have all these controls on taxes, private property, and all the things they're banning. Um, so go ahead, call them whatever you want, but this group sure doesn't represent any values that I hold. Um, capitalism, the economic system of consent, or even freedom itself. They're, they're just a recipe for political disaster ahead. And you should know that socialism, communism, fascism are completely incompatible with democracy. The only thing compatible with democracy are freedom and capitalism, as they are the only concepts dependent on the, upon the free will of individuals under consensual conditions. Isn't that kind of obvious? Democratic socialism is a contradiction in terms and doesn't correspond to reality. It's like saying unfree freedom. Yeah, I'll have some unfree freedom, please, you know? And even between real democracy and freedom, freedom is the higher value. So let's see, are the killer bees communist? Uh, well, they've banned everything from safe pesticides, uh, to, to sales of safe water bottles on municipal property, to banning safe, non-pollutant idling. You know, don't be the I and idle, goes their communist slogan, which they want now to reduce from five to three minutes, by the way. They've proposed egalitarian living wages for municipal employees. They've increased property taxes and government spending dramatically and consistently. They want to control private development. They've proposed landlord licensing set out to reduce the number of councillors per ward, abolish our votes for border control, and their labor movement, you know, green NDP priorities, which they say they're being supported by these groups, are all about as detached from reality and politics as you can get. I think they should consider themselves lucky that there are such benign and friendly-sounding words like communist and socialist and fascist to describe them. Because if we didn't have those words, well, I'll tell you, we would be name-calling, because <laughs> that's all that would be left. And speaking of name-calling, my name is Bob Metz. I am a capitalist, and I have to call an end to today's show because reality dictates that we are reaching the top of the hour, and my time, like Board of Controls, is up. So join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bad clothes, everything will be alright. <laughs> I like to play blackjack. I'm not addicted to gambling, I'm addicted to sitting in a semi-circle. My friend is a blackjack dealer, and on his forearm he has a tattoo of an ace and a jack. You see, I'm a blackjack player. On my forearm, 
I'm going to get a tattoo of a 10 and a 2. <laughs> and then maybe later a king.